Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to visit primed.com slash podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME CE credit. Maria is a 66-year-old retired factory worker who has atrial fibrillation due to mitral stenosis. She also has hypertension, which is well-controlled with lifestyle modification and lisinopril. Maria has been on warfarin for several years, but her INR is often out of range, usually because of the variations in her diet. She tells you her friend also has AFib and is on one of those new medicines that's advertised on television. And she doesn't have to worry about what she eats or getting her labs done all the time. She asks you if this is something she can try. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and Executive Editor of Dynamed. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me this morning. I love the fact that Maria has been watching television and wants to come off her warfarin and try one of those advertised drugs. Um, What are the treatment options for atrial fibrillation, especially with regards to anticoagulation? Well, just to quickly summarize, you know, the basic approach to managing atrial fibrillation, the first thing to do is to, of course, make sure someone's hemodynamically stable. And if you ever have someone who isn't, uh, particularly if they're having cardiovascular symptoms, then uh, cardioversion would be the initial approach. But for people with chronic atrial fibrillation, the vast majority we see in our offices, we emphasize just control of the rate rather than converting them to normal sinus rhythm. And for rate control, you're using either a beta blocker or something like diltiazem or verapamil. Rhythm control is really just reserved for those who remain symptomatic despite rate control. And occasionally, if uh, medication is insufficient, you might need to refer someone for ablation therapy. What we know is that anyone who has chronic AFib who is, has appropriate rate control, or even those controlled with medication where the rhythm is controlled, these people need thromboembolic prophylaxis to prevent stroke, at least the vast majority do. And to help sort out you know, who needs it uh, versus who doesn't, there are a number of uh, prediction rules. I use the CHADS uh, VASC score to assess the need for anticoagulation. And also uh, what's worth keeping in mind is something like the HASBLED score to uh, tell you what your risk of bleeding is so that you can weigh the pros and cons of of anticoagulation. But assuming someone's not at very high risk for for bleeding, uh, most people who have uh, atrial fibrillation need long-term anticoagulation. And that really means either uh, what we typically were using, the vitamin K antagonists, most uh, commonly used in this country would be warfarin, or what we used to call NOACs, which were novel oral anticoagulants, and now they're not so new anymore. So we have a new name, we call them DOACs, uh, direct oral anticoagulants. Um, the, the, the most common ones that we see used, uh, dabigatrin, uh, rivaroxaban, and apixaban, also adoxaban uh, is, is used as well. So uh, th- those are the, what the choices are at the moment. And- you know, they they seem like they have a 
fairly good safety record. Are they safe for someone like Maria? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when you get a new drug and there's an established treatment, there's always a little bit of uh, greater caution used in trying to replace the standard treatment. So in the initial trials that were looking at the DOAX, they often had very limited numbers of people with valvular heart disease or might have excluded them altogether. And this was in part because there had been uh, some evidence that uh, those who have mechanical heart valves uh, were having greater rates of uh, serious adverse effects when uh, on the DOAX compared to warfarin. So we knew for, for that that population was at greater risk. And so I think it's been a little more caution for people with valvular, uh, atri- valvular heart disease and AFib. You know, we're, when we're talking about valvular heart disease, we're talking about either aortic stenosis or uh, aortic regurge or mitral stenosis or mitral regurge. So those are the conditions that we're talking about. And so uh, there's been some uh, meta-analyses looking at trying to gather the patients from randomized trials where they were included. And now there's uh, more recently a large cohort study that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Looked at over 56,000 patients with AFib and valvular heart disease. And this was from a commercial database where they're just looking at the people have these diagnoses. They were given uh, either warfarin or the DOAX, and then they make adjustments uh, to try and match the two groups for risks of adverse effects or risks of one drug versus the other, that type of stuff. And what they found was, if anything, um, the groups that had the DOAX had lower rates of stroke, lower rates of systemic embolism, and lower rates of serious bleeding compared to warfarin. So this latest data that was published does suggest that these drugs are safe Uh, in people with valvular heart disease and atrial fibrillation. Excellent. I mean, I love the fact that when you use them, they're effective, in particular at looking at embolic disease, but it has lower rates of of the adverse effect of bleeding than than, uh, drugs like warfarin. So what are some of the reasons not to use a DOAC on a patient with atrial fibrillation? So, you know, to highlight some of what you were saying, you know, the advantages that are touted for the DOACs is they've got a more rapid onset of action. We all know that titrating warfarin can be problematic. There's a shorter half-life, and there's no recommended laboratory monitoring. That being said, though, warfarin is still preferred for those with mechanical valves. I mentioned that, at least in the study so far, people with mechanical valves do better with warfarin. Also, if you've got uh, end-stage chronic kidney disease, uh, many of the DOACs are are not um, appropriate in that population. What does end-stage chronic kidney disease mean? Well, you're typically talking about a GFR in the range of 50 to 30, something in that in that area. And when you obviously get below 15, you're getting ready for hemodialysis. And it's the, you know, it's not completely contraindicated, but these are areas where you'll find more people going with warfarin. And then finally, cost is a factor. Not everybody has uh, insurance that covers everything uh, the way we would like. And, you know, I, I looked up the cost of warfarin uh, versus, I just picked at random, a Pixabam. And uh, you know, many people know that Walmart has a $4 a month uh, drug program for selected drugs. 
and that also extends to $10 for a 90-day program. And warfarin is one of the drugs that they include, and it's not Walmart alone. I think Target has a similar program, and <clears throat> I'm not trying to recommend one uh, pharmacy over another, but just the point is it's out there. It's very inexpensive. And looking at the same uh, you know, price uh, schedule, a one-month Vapixaban can cost $500. So if you don't have drug coverage in your insurance plan or not good drug coverage, cost can be a substantial factor. I do wonder about the additional testing and, and complication rates, if, if that ever got uh, factored into a cost analysis study. You know, it does get factored in, but the problem is it's not you know, who's paying for what. Right. And so most of the people who are on warfarin don't have to pay out of pocket to have a lab test. And that's part of when, when you have a system that's fragmented the way we do, uh, you get these incentives that, you know, different people respond to different incentives based on how it's going to impact them. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, Maria is asking for us to switch her. What do you advise? So I think it would be quite reasonable uh, if she wanted to. I think the, the things to talk about for her would be, uh, well, first of all, of course, we would check her renal function. But again, uh, some people prefer, you know, if, if, it's not, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And so, you know, some people will just want to stay on the warfarin, but she's already raised the subject, so she has an interest. So I think for her, the primary thing would be to make sure that she understands the cost difference and to have a conversation with her about how that might impact her. But otherwise, I think uh, switching is quite reasonable. And in the long run, it probably leads to better outcomes. I think you're probably right. Alan, thank you for this review. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. Consider using DOAX for patients with valvular atrial fibrillation. But for those who have diminished kidney function or have had mechanical valves replacement, continue to use warfarin. Join us next time when we talk about breaking news about the role of salt substitutes in preventing stroke and all-cause mortality. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primed.com slash podcast and see you next week.